You're listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This message is from the series Unlimited, with a new weekly topic to give you a clear vision of God and to start living an unlimited life. Be sure to check out Michael's book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Good morning, good morning. I want to make sure that we're all ready to receive from God's Word today. Awake, alive, alert, receptive. Are we ready? Are we ready? We need to see ourselves, each of us needs to see ourselves as a garden ready to receive the Word of God, the seed of God's Word, so that it can grow up and produce fruit, produce life in our lives. That's what it is about. There are only two limiting factors in all of life, the limits that God puts on you and the limits you put on yourself. Only two limiting factors, and why do I keep repeating that? I keep repeating it because it really needs to sink in deep to who we are. It really needs to sink in deep into our DNA and the way we do life and the way we live life. You don't want to be somebody who's just coasting through life. You don't want to be somebody who comes up short from your greatest potential. Life is about reaching your greatest potential. It's not about comparing yourself to other people. And we've been learning about what it means to live a limitless life, a life with no limits, by following this letter written by a man who had his doors blown off, the Apostle Paul. We've been in the book of Philippians, and we've been in this unlimited series on purpose to help you understand Paul was somebody who realized he could no longer, he would no longer settle for comparing himself to other people. He wouldn't do that anymore. And when Paul did that, when Paul stopped comparing himself to other people, his life took off. It's no different in your life and in mine. When you stop comparing yourself to other people, your life will take off. We compare ourselves to other people. We take comfort in the fact of how we look compared to somebody else, you know, whether we're attractive or maybe we think we're not attractive. While all that's happening in our minds, the very people that we're looking at and thinking, well, we don't measure up to them, they're looking at us and thinking that they don't measure up to us. It's this ridiculous game that we play with each other, that we play with ourselves. We compare ourselves to other people and whether or not we're more attractive than them or they're more attractive than us. We compare ourselves to other people in regard to whether they're more fit than we are or we're more fit than they are, whether they're overweight or underweight. We compare ourselves all day long. And at the end of the day, what happens is we don't realize that very few people in life, very few people in life are pushing the envelope trying to reach their greatest potential. What actually ends up happening in the course of life is that we go on cruise control, we go on autopilot, we begin to settle for mediocrity. Another word for mediocrity is lukewarmth. And we begin to settle and embrace mediocrity, we embrace being lukewarm, we embrace being average. Nobody who ever has been a trendsetter, who's broken the mold, who's broken their personal best, who's changed society, got that way by settling for being average or by being mediocre. What needs to happen in each of our lives before real change takes place is you have to reach that point, first and foremost, of being disgusted with where you are. You have to be disgusted with where you are. If you're not disgusted, you won't make the changes, you won't take the steps that you need to make to get out of where you are and to become who you need to become. That means that you have to have, in the regular course of your life, a discontentedness with where you are. A bit of discontentedness is a very good thing. It's a very positive, motivating factor. And if you're not somebody who realizes that you can do more, you can accomplish more, you can be more, you can become more, You might actually settle for what everyone else is settling for, which is being average, being mediocre, being lukewarm, just kind of coasting by. And before you know it, you don't even realize, we don't even realize that by comparing ourselves to other people who are not necessarily trying to reach their greatest potential, what we're doing is lowering the standard and lowering the standard and lowering the standard until the standard is not even something that we should be enamored with in the first place. 
What happens in a society where people lower their standards? What happens in society when the people who have lowered their standards are the very same people who are comparing themselves to each other? The whole of society, the whole of society sinks and settles in instead of moving forward to what it could be. There are only two limiting factors on your life. First one is God. When God makes a limit, when God makes a determination, there's no changing his mind. He's sovereign. He's in control. But listen, it's not God who concerns me. You ever hear somebody say, I'm not worried God's in control? God doesn't concern me. He'll always come through. What concerns me is me. What should concern you is you. God will always do his part. He'll always do his part. The real issue, the real question is whether or not you will do your part in partnering with God to reach your greatest potential. Paul understood that it's absolute nonsense, it's ridiculous to compare himself with other people, to measure his progress, to measure his potential with anything else that anybody else was doing. And this is a guy who had accomplished unbelievable things in his life. He was a leader of leaders, a Jew of Jews. He was set to be the equivalent of the president of the theological school of his day, the theological spiritual leader of all of the nation of Israel, humanly speaking. That's where Paul was headed. He was next in line to be the leader theologically of the nation of Israel. And Paul realized that on his way to getting to know God, see, within each and every one of us, there's a God-shaped void that only God can fill. You can't eat enough oats potato chips to make up for that. You can't work out enough to be able to compensate for that. You can't take enough drugs or drink enough alcohol to make up for that. You can't get enough followers on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram to compensate for that. There's a God-shaped void inside of each and every one of us that only God can fill. It was designed by God. And therefore, the designer is the only one that can fill it. But Paul realized that on his way to getting to know God, the ironic thing happened to him. The tragedy happened to him. He didn't know God. And so he began to persecute the very God that he was trying to discover and trying to get other people to discover. And so he became not a living sacrifice before his conversion to Christ. He became a walking hypocrite, a walking contradiction of what it meant to be a leader who was leading other people to Jesus Christ. But when Paul encountered Jesus, the living and the true God, when he was on his way to Damascus, everything changed and everything then began to change, just like in your life. When you come to know Christ, everything changes and then that's the beginning of everything changing. It's not that everything changes in one fell swoop. That's not the way it works when you come to know Christ. Some of us are like microwaves and a lot of things change very quickly. Others of us, like myself, were more like crockpots, or pressure cookers, we change gradually over time. But the fact of the matter is that God changes us when we come to know Christ so that we can begin to change. Without being transformed by Jesus, without being changed by Jesus, without having all of your sins forgiven and new life and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes the moment you give your life to Christ, without that happening, you cannot reach your greatest potential in Jesus. But here's what happens. There are a lot of people who are Christians, and you might be one of them, you might not be, but God knows, and you'll be able to know too if you're honest with God and you're honest with yourself. That's what humility is, really, being honest to God, honest with yourself. There are many people who have come to know Christ as their Savior. They've been changed, and then they begin, they don't even realize they're doing it, they begin to compare themselves to other people. Well, I'm not that bad. Well, my sin isn't as bad as so-and-so's sin. Listen, you'll always find somebody. The flesh always gravitates toward the path of least resistance. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to resist that least resistant approach to life. 
You have to be committed to being yourself, the best version of yourself. You have to be committed to transformation. One of the greatest tragedies in all of life is that a person can be born again, they can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, they can be changed for the purpose of change, be transformed for the purpose of transformation, and then begin to rest on their laurels and not work hard on themselves. You need to work hard on yourself. You need to be unapologetic about yourself. You need to not make excuses for where you now are in your spiritual life so that you can be where you need to be in your spiritual life even 30 minutes from now. We're not going to be able to compare ourselves to each other or other people when one day we stand before God. The example, the role model, is not even the Apostle Paul. The standard, the icon, the image, is the Lord Jesus Christ was without fault, without sin, without blemish. That's the standard that God uses and will use for each and every one of us. But Paul's life, the Apostle Paul, was set free when he gave his life to Christ. God had a way, and he has a way in your life and mine, of making himself irresistible. He makes us an offer, kind of like the mob in a spiritual way. God makes us an offer that we can't refuse. Paul was transformed And then through the course of years, Paul understood the importance of being committed to his own transformation, to do what he needed to do in the divine equation of God and a human being working together, working together in an amazing, unlikely partnership. Just stop and think about that. Why would God, the creator of the universe, created the whole universe, why would he be interested not just in transforming the human race, but in transforming you as a member of the human race. All of the light years that comprise the universe, not just our galaxy, but the galaxies, and somehow the creator God is interested in you, that he sent his one and only unique son into this earth for you, to transform you? Can you imagine what would happen in your life if you were even more resolute, even more dedicated, even more committed, even more disciplined, even more purposeful in your own transformation? God is as convinced as he will ever be about your need for change. The real question is, are you? God is as committed as he could possibly be to your personal transformation. He proved it. He absolutely, fundamentally proved it. The question is, have you in any way limited how far you're going with God? God puts limits on us, and those limits are things that we need to embrace and to appreciate because when God limits in one area, he's doing it to free us up in another. Don't try to be a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't work. If God has set a limit on your life over here, hasn't given you what you had hoped for, hasn't given you what you desired, then let it go. You don't need it. If you needed it, God would have given it to you. But what you've really got to be careful of, what I've got to really be careful of, is have you in any way, have I in any way, limited what God hasn't? Have you limited what you can do with God in your physical body? Have you limited what you could do with God in your career? Have you limited what you could do with God in your finances? Have you limited what you could do with God in any area of life, in your education, You limited how you could serve God and honor God in the way that you rest, in the way you enjoy and appreciate your downtime. It's one thing to talk about not limiting our lives in a general sense, but then we need to get really practical about it. And that's what I'd like us to do, get so practical about it. By the time we're done together, you will know what your next step is with God. In Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, it's the Apostle Paul who gave up everything Theologically, imagine that. He gave up everything spiritually 
so that God could straighten out his theology and get his spiritual act together so that this passion that Paul had, this gifting that Paul had to be a teacher, to be a leader, was then directed in a godly way, in a Jesus Christ-empowered way so that he could reach his fullest potential. And here's what Paul says in verse 12, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this, meaning that he's reached the ultimate and final culmination of his walk with Christ, that there was nothing else in his walk with Christ that he needed to accomplish. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying I've achieved everything and it's all done and now I'm finished. He's saying not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on, I press on and make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Now, this is not him saying, well, the bygones be bygones. I'm not going to think about the past. He's specifically the context. Remember, words make up phrases, which make up sentences, which make up paragraphs, which make up chapters, which make up books, which make up all 66 books of the Bible. Words have their meaning within a context. And the context of Paul saying, forgetting what's behind me, what he's talking about specifically is my self-righteous life. Trying to obtain righteousness and favor with God by being a quote-unquote good person by following the law as a Pharisee, as a recovering Pharisee now that he was. And if this is true for Paul to say, then how much more true is it for you and for me? If obtaining righteousness was not possible, by following the law for a Pharisee, then how in the world could any of us make up our own standard apart from the law and think that God's going to say, okay, you got something better than what I laid down. So I'm going to follow your standard instead of the standard that I've laid down. So what Paul is saying is, forgetting what's behind. I no longer place my hope in a self-imposed standard of righteousness I don't have any confidence whatsoever in that. Now, my hope is in a person, the giver of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is in a person and the finished work of Jesus. That's why he's saying this forgetting in verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We'll get to that part when we wrap things up here. But the idea of not losing the ground that God has already given you. Have you gone back? Have you gone backward when you should be moving forward? Have you regressed when you should be making progress? Paul says, let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, it's interesting what Paul says here. He uses twice this phrase that's presented to us, press on. The word press on, dioko. That's the Greek word, the original language that this was written in. And it means to press on. That's what it can mean. But more extensively, to hasten or to run. It's likened to somebody who's in a race, somebody who's pursuing something or to aspire, to drive away or to drive out. Now, that's really important, this idea of driving away or driving out. Paul was now single-heartedly focused on the race set before him, which was Jesus Christ. No longer trying to obtain a righteousness of his own, now that he had been made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus, by faith in Jesus, he was now driving out everything else. And the whole context supports this whole translation. He was now driving out anything and everything else that would compete with his single-hearted, sold-out, spiritual pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, I press on. I aspire to. I run. I lay aside everything and anything else other than this. He was single-tasking. Today, they've come to understand that multitasking used to be that was a great thing to put on your resume. Do not put multitasking on your resume. Go home and change your resume because any employer 
who's up to date and up to speed with psychology today, who understands psychology today, knows that when you multitask, you are not more effective. It's not a benefit to the company and your workload. It is a distraction to the company and the workload and your productivity. And Paul understood a thing or two about productivity. He understood this idea of making progress toward his goal of receiving the prize of being faithful to Jesus. And faithfulness does have its rewards. It does have its rewards. So he talks here about the prize, and he talks here about pressing on twice. He does it in verse 12, and he does it in verse 14, where this is the idea to hasten, to do it in a way that looks like you mean it. Now, anybody in our family, the running joke in our family is, I don't run unless somebody's chasing me. I just don't. I won't. I'll do physical exercise, I'll lift weights, I'll do push-ups, all kinds of stuff like that, but I will not run unless somebody's chasing me. Now, you might be able to identify with that. You might be able to say on the flip side, on the flippity-flip, you might say, but I like to run. Well, you need counseling, so I'd love to talk with you this week. Uh, thank you. We're, we're, we can identify now, right? But here's the deal. When it comes to Jesus and running, every single one of us can run because you are being chased. You have been chased by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This is what he says in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already made perfect, but I press on and make up my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own or because Christ Jesus ran after me. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That Jesus pursued you. He ran after you. There are billions and billions of people on this earth. Billions of people on this earth. God, in his mercy, in his kindness, in his love, in his affection, in his desire to spend all eternity with you, he came after you with a passion. He hastened, he ran, he pursued, he left his place in heaven. He left his place in heaven. Listen, it's not just that God so loved the world in a nebulous sense. You're in the world. God loved and loves you, knows you by name, left his place of comfort, left all of his glory, as the book of Philippians makes so clear, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself Nothing, taking the form of a servant because he wanted to spend eternity with you. Now, if God chased me that way, then I can run after Jesus. If God ran after you with that kind of a passion, then surely you can run after God. You can hasten, you can single task, you can put aside lesser things, and you can run after God because the fact of the matter is that God has chased you. And if you've given your life to Christ, he caught you. And if you haven't yet given your life to Christ and God is chasing you and you know that he's chasing you, would you just stop running? Because you will not outrun him. And here's the, the lie that we believe. We think that we can resist God and come out a winner. We think that we can outrun God. We think that our plan for our lives is better than the creator's plan for our lives. It's not. We all are at some point in our lives self-deceived. We hold on to things we shouldn't hold on to. We do things we shouldn't do. We don't do things that we shouldn't do. We create complications and problems for our lives for no other reason than we just don't believe that God is good. We just don't really believe at a deeper level. The older you get in Christ, the more you begin to realize it. That is, if you attain to the things you already have and you don't slide back, the longer you progress in Jesus, the more you realize that God doesn't lie to me. God doesn't want to give me terrible things. God doesn't have a secret agenda to undermine my life. God wants you to succeed. In fact, one day, he's going to hold you up as a trophy. He's going to hold you up and say, look at how much I love you. He's going to hold you up and he's going to be able to say with your life, no one can accuse me of being unrighteous. No one can accuse me of not caring 
No one can accuse me of not intervening. Nobody can accuse me of not running after what was running away from me. It's not that you pursued God. It's not that I pursued God. It's that he pursued you. He pursued me. He is pursuing you. And because he's chasing you, you can run for God. Anybody can be a runner, spiritually speaking, if you know Jesus as your Savior. I press on. Are you pressing on or have you given up? Are you running hard because Jesus ran hard after you? You need to. You know, Paul talks here about this prize. He talks about this prize that's pretty amazing. He says, I press on in verse 14 toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now, before that, he uses the word, the phrase, straining forward. Now, the word that's used there, epictanomai. I know you're like, well, I don't even want to try to pronounce that. But I want you to know there's a Greek word that actually has a meaning that sometimes gets lost in translation. And the idea is that this is somebody who is reaching out, who is approaching the finish line. You ever see that in the Olympics when they're approaching the finish line? And what do they do? They stretch. Ah! And sometimes it can be so close because they are comparing themselves to somebody else. They stretch ah, to get just a hair on their heads over that finish line before their competition. The only thing is, you're not competing with somebody else. You're competing with yourself. And here's what I mean by that. The race of life is for you to reach your fullest potential in Jesus Christ and not to take comfort in the fact of, well, I'm doing it more than my wife is doing it. I'm doing it more than my husband's doing it. I'm doing it more than my children are doing it. I'm doing it more than most people in my church are doing it. I'm doing it more than fill in the blank, whoever it is. That's not what it's about. What it's about is, are you straining forward? Are you stretching as the imagery is presented here, the imagery of an athlete? Are you stretched out? Are you straining toward something? And what is it that Paul was straining toward? The prize. What is it that you should be straining forward toward? The prize. And in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul talks about this. Turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It's an amazing thing that Paul does here. There are five references to crowns in the New Testament. Some people believe that there are five different crowns. Others believe that they are the same crown. It's used, this idea of receiving a reward or a prize, as Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3, and that In each instance, the crown or the wreath, the prize, is just referenced a little bit differently. Good people can disagree on that, but what we can't disagree on is the fact that God gives rewards. He will reward you for the way you run after him. He will reward you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run, or run in such a way that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, Paul knew what the finish line was. He knew what the objective of his running was. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So he's talking about a prize, a wreath, an award that he's going to be given for his disciplined, purposeful, focused life that has Jesus Christ as the center, the object of his attention and his affections. Saying, I don't run aimlessly, I'm not multitasking in the course of life. I said, the idea of making money is to glorify God. The idea to choose your career is to glorify God. It's not that you need to be in full-time ministry because you become a pastor or because you uh, accept a full-time call to ministry. You go to Bible college or seminary. Sometimes it's cemetery. That's not what it's about. That you have alphabets after your name or alphabets before your name, and that's what makes you capable of serving God in a full-time capacity. This idea of lay ministry that people in white ivory towers in seminary and Bible college came up with, one of the greatest disservices in the body of Christ that's ever happened. We are called a priesthood of believers. You have been called to serve God on a full-time basis, whether you get paid for it or whether you don't. The idea is to be good for nothing. 
because you need to be good for someone. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you get paid this side of eternity or not is irrelevant. One day you will receive a prize. You will receive a reward. You will receive at least one crown, if not multiples. We can agree to disagree on that. But the idea is that God will reward you. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved or longed for his appearing. Do you long for, do you love the idea of the return of the Lord? Because there is a crown, there is a reward, there is a prize that is coming your way as a direct result. First Peter chapter 5, verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, that would be the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is where you're headed. And this is what Paul had always before him. He mentions it four times in his writings, specifically the idea of a prize, the idea of a crown. And then when we get to the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, look at what it says. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. I'm not talking about the great tribulation. Don't confuse what the Bible's saying here. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God is a rewarder. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the way it works. That's the way God works. He's revealed to us ahead of time. Hey, this is how I operate. And Paul's not multitasking. He's single tasking. You need to stop being distracted with all this other stuff of life as if all this other stuff's important. Listen, if what you're doing doesn't lead you to the feet of Jesus, then stop doing it. If what you're doing doesn't lead you to the glory of God, then stop doing it. Listen, teenagers, listen. Stop waiting until you graduate to get serious about following Jesus. Because I gotta be honest with you, most adults, and if I offend somebody, Jesus offended people. The Apostle Paul offended people. I think you can put up with a little bit of me from time to time ruffling a little feathers. I know that I've ruffled feathers before, but I do it because you have to be ruffled. I have to be ruffled. When I read the scriptures... They ruffle my feathers. If you're reading the scriptures and your bacon doesn't get baked from time to time, you're not really reading the scriptures. If you're reading the scriptures and your feathers don't get ruffled, you don't understand one of the primary purposes of scripture. God loves you so much that he will not let you stay comfortable. God loves you so much that he will not let you stay comfortable. Teenagers, if you're waiting to follow the average American Christian adult before you get sold out for Jesus, you're going to wait a long time. And for any adults who get upset about that, let it get you so upset that you're going to stop comparing yourself to somebody else and you're going to say, you know what? The truth is, he's right. The world needs to see what it means to be on fire for Jesus. The world needs to see what it means to live without limits in a life, in a day, in an age where so many of us have embraced limits as normal. Listen, if God hasn't limited you in a certain area, why did you limit yourself? Because you believe what other people said about you? Is that why? No, nope. other people can't limit you. The only way that they can limit you, what they've said, what they've done, is if you believe what they've said and what they've done is more significant than what God has said to you. Why do you want to believe that? Why believe that? Everything in your life needs to be focused. Everything. Is this going to help me glorify God? Because if it helps you glorify God, then you have the assurance that you're going to be rewarded for that. You're going to be rewarded for that. You have based on God's word. Paul talks about, I strain on, I stretch forward, I run, I hasten. I put everything else aside so that I can put Jesus as the epicenter of my life. Jesus is the one that I'm seeking to glorify. Jesus is the one I'm seeking to obey. Jesus and his kingdom, that's the one that I'm seeking to expand. I don't want to compare myself to other people. You realize how ridiculous it is. I don't want to compare myself to the way I used to be unless it was someplace that was deeper and higher than I currently am. 
This is what Paul means when he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, look at how he begins this whole thing when we look at it as a sandwich. Verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You can run after God because God has run after you. And the whole idea here is that you should be changing. You should be, you're, you're changed so that you can continue to change. You're changed so that you can continue to change and you can be an agent of change in the lives of other people. January 8th of this year, January 8th of this year, I wasn't doing too good in my physical health. Now, I'm not saying that I was you know, doing terrible. Maybe for somebody who was 54 years old, I'm now 55, maybe not that bad. But we were having a discussion in the family my sons and I, and, I, and a challenge was thrown down about how many push-ups I could do. So I, in my lack of humility, said, I'll show you how many push-ups I could do. And I got down, and I did a whopping 33 push-ups. Now, you might say to yourself, that's not too bad for a 54-year-old guy. But uh, I was pretty winded after that and pretty disturbed and pretty disgruntled and discouraged. I thought, man, 33. And I got a few Snickers from my sons who thought that they could beat me. And at one point, one of them could happens to be working the camera right now, but I won't say his name. And so I threw down a challenge, and I said, you think I can't do X number? I can't remember what it was by you know, a couple of months. I don't think you can. Now, granted, the 33 push-ups that I did on January 8th of this year were not even strict form. Most 54-year-olds probably can't do that many. In fact, I went and saw my doctor, Dr. Eric Barr, family med medical practices over there on uh, Market Street. Maybe you know about him. But it's a true story. I went to him and I said, hey, how much, what's the average number of push-ups? He, he said, it's, I think it's like 17 for a guy your age. It's average. Man, whoever got anywhere in life by being average? The real issue is how many push-ups can I do? And so I set some goals for myself about doing push-ups. I can do more. I can do better. I, can, I don't even want to know what the average is. Who wants to be average? Average won't get you forward. I need a volunteer right now. I need somebody who's strong right now. Somebody come up on the Campisi. Come on up here, buddy. Come on up here. You know somebody with the name Campisi has got some muscle to the hustle right here. So January 8th, I did 33. I'd like to know how many I could do now because I'm on this quest to do as many as I possibly can. So what you're going to do is you're just going to keep my feet from sliding back, okay? As I do my push-ups, your only purpose, it's super easy, just keep my feet from sliding out because I'm not warmed up now. I haven't stretched out. These, I don't have a mat here, nothing like that. But I'd like to see how many push-ups I could do because I'm on my quest to be my personal best. Not that I've already obtained this. I have not already obtained my objective, but... I'm going to press on to try to meet, reach my greatest potential. Now, I might do a little bit better than I otherwise would do if you help me in this quest. He's helping me, but maybe you could help me as well. So I'd like to see how many I could do. Wouldn't you like to see how many I could do? These are now strict form. Not bad, not great. I did 65 last week, but uh, not bad. What's my goal? I'd like to do 100 by the end of the year. If I look at what other people have accomplished, I might get discouraged. It's not that I've already achieved that, but I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on to try to be the best version of me. I wouldn't have been able to do that if you didn't cheer me on, which means the whole idea is that the Christian life is not something that we're supposed to live on our own, but with others, where we cheer others on to pressing on, to make it their objective to be the best version of you and the best version of you, and the best version of you.
and the best version of you. To make it your objective. To not compare yourself to anybody else. But to be the person that you need to be. To be the person that you can be. Whether other people follow you or whether they don't. Whether other people are interested in being single-heartedly sold out, doggedly determined to follow Jesus or not. You'll never make progress in life if you settle for what's average. You'll never become the best version of you in the midst of all the other versions of you that could exist if you don't make it your ambition to be single-heartedly determined to reach your greatest potential. I'm not talking about just physical exercise. Why would I want to talk about just physical exercise? I'm talking about giving God glory in every area of life. You think about the things that you say to people and how you say them. The things that you text to people. The things that you might type to people. What you may say on social media and how you say it. It's really anti-social media. All that stuff matters. And say, when a, when a church leader comes to you and says, hey, your behavior in this circumstance was not the best that you're capable of. Your behavior in this circumstance didn't glorify the Lord. It satisfied the flesh and perhaps played into the hands of the devil. Man, don't, don't go off on the church leader and say, oh, who do you think you are? You know who he is? He's somebody, she is somebody who has been called by God to help you shoot for a higher standard than most of us are shooting for. That's what the purpose is. I'll never forget, I used to live in the northern part of Portland, Oregon, in the St. John's area. It's not too far from the Willamette River. When I was in seminary, I was coming from the house where I was living, going to seminary, and uh, I realized that I was hungry. I mean, I was so crazy hungry that I decided to stop off at a McDonald's to satisfy that hunger. Yeah, hadn't been to one in a long time, had distant memories as a child of how delicious a Big Mac tasted. So I pulled into this McDonald's in the St. John's area in the industrial district, went through the drive-in. Of course, I ordered some fries. You got to order some fries when you're at McDonald's. I ordered a Big Mac, figured I'd eat the Big Mac on my way to seminary. Put the bag there next to me and reached in as I was driving in my gold-toned Toyota Celica. Put my hand in the bag, and I felt what felt like a sponge sopping wet. And I pulled up what was supposed to be a Big Mac, and I said, man, if I eat that, I don't know what's going to happen to me. Put it back in the bag, still close enough to the McDonald's, drove back to the McDonald's, and handed it back to them and said, man, I can't eat that. And they took it back, and I got my money back. Who's responsible for a soggy Big Mac. Am I going to do right McDonald's? Is Ronald McDonald going to write me back? Is the president of McDonald's going to write me back and say, dear Mike, here's a lifetime supply of Big Macs. We're so sorry for the inconvenience that you experienced at our industrial area, St. John's McDonald's. The owner is not the one who is there. McDonald's Ronald McDonald, corporate, they're not the ones responsible for what happened in that local franchise. It was the manager of that local franchise. He or she was responsible for the lowering of the standard, the lowering of the quality. And we all know that that's true. And church leaders, let me remind you, it's true here and it's true everywhere. The quality of a church and the standard of a church falls on you. You will either allow a church to get mushy and soggy and disgusting, or you will hold to the standard 
that's presented in Scripture to make sure that the church is presented to Jesus, as the Scriptures say, without spot or wrinkle or blemish. In the same way that a McDonald's is under the supervision of the store manager, so a local church is under the supervision of the pastors and the elders. And so if the pastors and the elders lower the standard and stop pressing on and stop straining forward and don't encourage the people of the congregation to follow their example and to follow the example of Paul and ultimately speaking, to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, any church, this church or any church, could start serving soggy Big Macs. That's the way it works. So you have to have a standard. And that standard needs to be biblical. And it needs to be one that we don't apologize for. In your family, what's going on in your family, the responsibility, the buck stops with the mother and the father, or if there's not a literal mother and father, with the guardian and the guardians. The buck stops with the leadership of the household. If your children are acting up, you need to take a good look in the mirror. Does that mean that it's always your responsibility? Listen, I've got two teenagers. I understand. But listen, don't blame everything on the teenager. Don't blame everything on the fact that it's out of your control. If you are not making your ambition to press on and to stretch and strain forward to make sure that Jesus is glorified in unapologetic ways. You need to take seriously this whole idea of forgiveness and reconciliation. Listen, that's probably 95% of the stuff that church leaders have to deal with. 95% of the issues in the church have to deal with people lowering their standards, people not embracing a biblical standard, people compromising on a biblical standard, people not even wanting to follow through on what the Bible teaches because all of us want that get-out-of-jail-free card. All of us want to be saved. All of us want to be changed. But we don't realize the other part, that you were changed so that you could continue to change. And that continual change, that continuous change is to be more like the one who changed you. So whether or not you forgive somebody, whether or not you reconcile, that's not little stuff, that's huge stuff. There is no gospel without forgiveness. There is no gospel without reconciliation. There is no gospel without restoration. Forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation, they're not important to the gospel. They are the gospel. There is no gospel without those things. And so you need to get serious about forgiving i got an issue in my family right now with a very close family member. You probably have issues either with immediate family or extended family or coworkers where you want there to be restoration. You want there to be reconciliation. You want there to be forgiveness. You can't control what other people do, but you can do a lot more in regard to controlling what you do. Most of us can do a lot more in the pressing on and the straining forward and to doing everything within our capability. You can't change somebody else, but you can change yourself. Through Jesus Christ, you can change. You can be the person you otherwise would not be and do things you otherwise would not say to accomplish a reality, to experience a reality that would be fantasy apart from one simple factor, your obedience to God and his greatest good. And finally, you got to deal with your thought life. Mel Robbins, I love Mel Robbins. I listen to a lot of her stuff, watch a lot of her stuff. She's got this thing called the five-second rule, five, four, three, two, one, change your attitude. I did a little a variation of that. I call it one, two, three, boom. You think about, listen, I've got a bad attitude. I'm not thinking the way I should be thinking about somebody. I'm not thinking with the mind of Christ about this situation. How can I change it? You ever been captive by your own thoughts? You ever been held captive by your own thoughts? Of course you have. And yet the Bible says we are to take captive every thought. The real question is how do you do that? You do it. You count and you say one, two, three, boom. And then 
when you're finished saying boom, I'm literally going to change the thought that I was having toward that person, the attitude that I was having toward this situation, and I'm going to replace it with the right attitude. You can literally do it. If you give yourself time to come up for air and breathe and say, listen, this thought is not God-glorifying. It's not God-honoring, and I need to change it if I am serious about pressing on and straining forward and shooting for the prize of glorifying God where I then in return get rewarded. I need to be serious about it, which means you need to take captive your thoughts. Here's how you do it. One, two, three, boom. And you take that person who is maybe causing an offense, put them over here, say, I'm no longer going to focus on the offense. I'm going to focus on what Jesus did to enable me to forgive And that person might not ask for forgiveness. You might not be able to. Sometimes it's not wise to try to forgive somebody horizontally and to enter right back into the same thing, to give the cycle the opportunity to repeat itself. But the most unwise thing you can do is hold on to a grudge, let yourself become bitter and enslaved because you're waiting for that person to change. Since we're living in a society in a day and age where most people are comfortable with average, Since we're living in a society in a day and age where most people want to get out of jail free, they want to be changed, but they don't understand that they need to change. In the most instances in life, the people that need to change in order for a situation to be reconciled, they won't change. But you can change your attitude in the midst of them not changing so that you don't get hamstrung and caught up and that you don't end up as a shipwrecked saint on some island somewhere, waiting for somebody else to do their part. You just do your part. Change your thinking. Everything else will begin to fall into place. You need to take seriously, I need to take seriously, this idea of straining forward, pressing on toward glorifying God in any and every circumstance. It's all about, it's all about not that you've already obtained perfection, but that God, through Christ, is perfecting you. Will you cooperate with him? Will you let him finish what he started? He knows how to do great things in our lives. Let him do it. Interested in requesting Michael Anthony for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. You can get more resources just like this podcast through the app and website as well.